0: Former President Donald Trump has been indicted on seven counts related to obstruction and mishandling of classified documents. It's Friday, June 9th. This is W.B. Marsh Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa
1: Shanoi. Coming up... I'm an innocent man. We will prove that again. Seven years of proving it, and here we go again. Very
0: unfair. In a clip posted to social media, Trump claims innocence. He's expected to appear in federal court in Miami on Tuesday. Also the Supreme Court rules that a new congressional district map in Alabama hurt black voters. And this hour, the effects of closing an addiction treatment program at Emerson Hospital in Concord. It doesn't make sense
2: for the amount of good that this service does for the hospital for the community,
0: for the patients. Cloudy with rain this afternoon in the 60s. It's 7.01, now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Former President Donald Trump says he's been indicted by the Justice Department over his handling of classified documents after he left the White House. This marks the first time in history that a former president is facing federal criminal charges. In a post on Truth Social Thursday night, Trump claimed that he was innocent.
1: I did nothing wrong. And we will fight this out just like we've been fighting for seven years. It would be wonderful if we could devote our full time to making America great again.
3: The indictment remains sealed, but attorneys for Trump say he's facing multiple charges, including obstruction of justice, conspiracy and false statements. Trump says he will report to a federal court in Miami on Tuesday. The haze of wildfire smoke pollution that shrouded the northeastern U.S. and mid-Atlantic regions appears to be easing up. NPR's Maria Godoy reports while air quality is improving, pollution levels remain unhealthy in
4: some areas. Young children, people with lung and heart conditions, and the elderly are among those considered most at risk from fine particles in wildfire smoke. Those particles can settle in the airways and even enter the bloodstream. To stay safe, check the air quality where you live at airnow.gov. That's an EPA site which has a color-coded meter that tells you how bad things are in your area and when to use caution. If the air quality is bad, stay inside as much as possible. Keep the doors and windows closed. If you've got an air purifier, run it on high. Don't burn candles or vacuum because that can add more particles to your indoor air. And drink lots of water. The fluid keeps your eyes, nose, and throat moist, which can help with irritation. Maria Godoy, NPR News. The attorney general for the state of New York is
3: suing an anti-abortion group for blocking access to reproductive health care facilities. Desiree Diorio of member station WSHU reports Letitia James is calling the members of the Red Rose Rescue terrorists.
5: New York's attorney general accuses Red Rose Rescue of trespassing at clinics and threatening doctors and patients. She says the group has staged die-ins lasting several hours and placed industrial locks on clinic entrances. The ability to make our own decisions about our own bodies is the most basic and essential element of human rights and one we should all enjoy without fear or terror or harassment. Letitia James wants a federal judge to block the activists from getting within 30 feet of any reproductive health care facility in the state. A Red Rose Rescue spokesperson says the group is peaceful and calls the lawsuit an unjust attack on free speech. For NPR News, I'm Desiree DiOrio in New York. This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The Blue Line of the T will be free for two months this summer. WBUR's Samantha Kuzia tells us that's because the Sumner Tunnel will be shut down completely. State transportation
6: leaders want people to consider options other than driving to and from Logan Airport. The cost of parking lots at Blue Line stations will be dropped to $2 a day. Another option is the East Boston Ferry, which will also be free. That runs from Lewis Wharf to Long Wharf. The Lynn Ferry and Logan Express buses will also cost less during the closure. The Sumner closure will start July 5th and run through August 31st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Smith Kutzia.
0: Boston's three public exam schools are getting more racially diverse. Data reviewed by the Boston Globe show the percentage of Black and Latino students steadily increased over the last three years at those schools. That's after the city adopted new admission factors which consider income and the neighborhoods where applicants live. Resident physicians at Mass General Brigham are celebrating a win in their push to unionize. Seventy-five percent voted this week in favor of forming a union. WBR's Priyanka Thiel McCluskey reports the new bargaining unit will represent about 2,500 residents and fellows.
6: This is the
7: latest in a
0: string of victories around the country for the Committee of Interns and Residents, an arm of
7: the Service Employees International Union. Sarah Brown is a resident physician at Massachusetts General Hospital.
8: It's a referendum on the structure of, of medical training and, and our compensation and our ability to negotiate what we want to see not only with our employers, but just in healthcare delivery.
9: Brown says the
7: union will fight for better pay and benefits, including help for residents struggling with the costs of housing and child care. Hospital leaders say they'll continue to provide world-class training within the parameters of collective bargaining. For 90.9 WBUR,
0: I'm Priyanka Deal McCluskey. The Suffolk County DA's office is investigating homophobic vandalism at a church in Jamaica Plain. The First Baptist Church was defaced with graffiti earlier this week. Church leaders say they welcome the LGBTQ community. They're planning a rally this Sunday in response to the vandalism. It's seven oh six. 6
10: we're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn
0: more at tbf.org. The Red Sox lost to the Guardians 10-3 last night in Cleveland. The Sox will be in the Bronx tonight to begin a three-game series with the Yankees. An air quality alert from the Canadian wildfires remains in effect on the south coast, Cape and Islands. Cloudy with afternoon showers and storms today. It'll be in the 60s. More showers and storms possible overnight with temperatures in the 50s. Cloudy with more showers tomorrow in the upper 60s. 60s, sunny on Sunday, and in the 70s. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
11: WBUR supporters include the Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
13: And I'm Asma Khalid in Washington. Former President Donald Trump is now a defendant in a case filed by the government he once led.
12: Trump faces a federal criminal indictment related to sensitive documents found at his Florida resort with charges that include conspiracy and false statements he's due in federal court in Miami on Tuesday.
13: NPR justice correspondent Carrie Johnson has been following this story and she joins us now to help us understand the latest. Carrie, it's great to have you with us.
7: Thank you. Happy to be here.
13: Carrie, this investigation has been going on now for more than a year, and it's now resulted in the first federal criminal charges against a former president. What do we know about these specific charges?
7: This indictment is still under seal, but lawyers for Donald Trump have been describing some of the charges. They say there are seven counts. They include willful retention of information related to national defense, part of the Espionage Act. There's at least one charge related to obstruction and at least one other related to false statements. But it's not clear whether anyone else is included in this indictment. We do know prosecutors have been investigating aides to Trump who may have moved boxes at that Mar-a-Lago resort.
13: So how is Donald Trump himself reacting to this indictment? Trump told the world about the
7: FBI search of his Florida home back in August 2022, and he told the world again last night that he had been notified about the indictment. Trump says he is a, quote, innocent man. He says it's a dark day for the U.S., and he called these charges political interference because they're coming in the middle of his campaign for the White House in 2024.
13: Mm-hmm. So what happens next? Uh, what's the sort of next step in this legal process? Donald Trump
7: has been summoned to show up at the federal courthouse in Miami at 3 p.m. on Tuesday. His lawyer, Jim Trustee, told CNN last night that Trump will not be arrested, but he might go through processing at the courthouse and deal with other red tape behind the scenes. Over the next few days, the U.S. Marshals Service and the Secret Service are going to do a lot of planning to make sure that courthouse is secure.
13: So Kerry, this is the first federal indictment of a former president, but it is the second indictment. For Donald Trump. Uh, Trump was previously indicted earlier this year, just a couple months ago, by prosecutors in New York. So does that case offer a kind of blueprint for what might happen here? Yeah, in
7: many ways, yes, those charges in New York came from Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. There was a lot of security worked out for Trump's appearance at the courthouse in lower Manhattan. And again, those are charges that relate to falsifying business records for alleged hush money payments to Stormy Daniels shortly before the 2016 election. This new federal case from the Justice Department is more serious legally, and it would carry more significant penalties and punishments, too.
13: Hmm. So Kerry, much of this news seems to be coming from the former president himself. I am curious what the Justice Department is saying about the charges.
7: Nothing. The special counsel, Jack Smith, has not said a word since he was appointed last winter. He had no immediate comment last night. Remember, Smith is a registered independent, former war crimes prosecutor, who once led the unit at the Justice Department that prosecutes corrupt public officials. Of course, it's possible the Justice Department will move to unseal the indictment as a matter of public interest before Tuesday. Not clear they intend to do that at this point. And Attorney General Merrick Garland has said the special counsel acts outside of of day-to-day supervision at justice, he's the one to speak.
13: Real quick, Carrie, this is all going on during the 2024 presidential campaign. So does that mean Trump will be on trial while the campaign is underway?
7: It does certainly seem, given how the wheels of justice grind, that there will be legal proceedings. It's not clear a trial will be underway during the campaign at this point.
13: All right. That's NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you so much. My pleasure. For more now on the political implications of this indictment, let's bring in NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Good morning, Domenico. Hey, So Trump is running for president, uh, to state the obvious. He is the leading Republican candidate to uh, possibly get his old job back. And thus far, I will say not much has affected his trajectory. So why would this moment be any different?
14: Well, we can't know for certain what's going to happen, but we know what's already happened. And amazingly, this is not Trump's first indictment. You know, after the one in New York stemming from those hush money payments to women he'd allegedly had affairs with. His hand only got stronger in the GOP. That was also true after the FBI searched his home in this very case, and even after he was found liable for sexual abuse and defamation of the writer E. Jean Carroll, who was awarded millions of dollars. You know, Trump has spent years, almost a decade now, undermining the Justice Department and the FBI, saying they're politically motivated and out to get him. That's been amplified by conservative media, and it's insulated him somewhat in this GOP primary fight.
13: Mm -hmm. So what's been the reaction from the Republican rivals who trail Donald Trump?
14: Some, some have been critical of Trump. You know, Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson put out a statement last night saying that Trump has become a distraction and should end his campaign. Before this came out, of course, as former Vice President Mike Pence said of Trump that anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. Probably the most hotly critical of Trump has been former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Mm-hmm. Here he was in New Hampshire at his kickoff event.
15: The person I am talking
16: about who is obsessed with the mirror. Who never admits a mistake, who never admits a fault, and who always finds someone else and something else to blame for whatever goes wrong, but finds every reason to take credit for anything that goes right, is Donald
14: Trump. You know, but those criticisms really are the minority of his rivals. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's really his chief rival, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott both sided with Trump. They called what's happening the, quote, weaponization of the Justice Department and said that they believe there's been a double standard. Vivek Ramaswamy, the uh, tech entrepreneur who's also running, even vowed to pardon Trump if he wins. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we can expect to hear more of that. You know, Republican strategists I talked to uh, think that in the short term, this could actually help Trump again. in. The primary. But in the long run, maybe, maybe if candidates make this argument, he could start to be seen as too chaotic and too weak a candidate against Biden. But we're not there right now.
13: You know, Domenico, I realize that it is impossible to fully assess how this all could shape the 2024 election, uh, but it is truly unprecedented. So I'm curious what your analysis is. I mean, how do you think this might shape what voters think about him?
14: Well, you know, take a step back. It's really remarkable. I mean, we have a candidate, a former president who's now under a pair of indictments with trials potentially stretching into next year or at least legal proceedings. Uh, and these aren't even the only potential charges Trump is facing. You know, there's still the case in Georgia about Trump's scheme to overturn the election results and another federal one into his role into the January 6th riot at the Capitol. And if Trump is convicted and faces any jail time, he can still run for president and remain on the ballot, even if he's convicted of a felony. He wouldn't be able to vote in Florida, though. Mm. Um, This is a very strange place for the country to be in, and not one I think most expected that we would be.
13: Very strange indeed. NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro, thanks so much.
12: You're welcome. President Biden says his White House meeting with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was about upgrading their transatlantic
17: relationship. Our economic partnership is enormous strength and source of strength that anchors everything that we do together.
12: Both leaders announced a new plan to strengthen cooperation with everything from trade deals to international rules for AI. And they also affirmed unwavering support for Ukraine. The British ambassador to the U.S., Karen Pierce, was at the White House with them yesterday. Ambassador, the new economic partnership that's been announced, the Atlantic Declaration, that has give the U.K. everything it was hoping to get.
18: Uh, Absolutely. We've negotiated uh, very closely uh, with our friends in in the White House and throughout the U.S. interagency process. Uh, As the Prime Minister and the President said, uh, fundamentally this is about extending the relationship to meet the new challenges of the 21st century, which include things like economic coercion uh, and bring big questions of economic security. So if you like, we had the Defence and Security... Relationship uh, well cemented after the Second World War. Now we're in the twenty-first century. We've got new challenges. This is about extending the relationship to meet those new economic challenges.
12: Ambassador, how tied are the things in the Atlantic Declaration to the Biden administration remaining in the White House?
18: Oh, not not. I mean, not to speak to bind a future administration. Uh, that's not a question uh, for me as a diplomat. Uh, but I think um, any American government would want to do things to strengthen resilience, uh, to work with transatlantic partners uh, like the UK, to strengthen peace and stability uh, in a free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, to to cooperate with partners against economic coercion and to, to make supply chains resilient, uh, as well as looking at things like uh, AI, Uh, quantum all these new challenges Um, so I'm pretty confident these are themes that are going to endure uh, probably for many decades and the the president was was very clear that what happens in the next few years uh, is going to shape the trajectory of the first half of the 21st century we would very much agree with that
12: still uh, no post-Brexit trade deal between the US and the UK how far out of reach is that
18: well, we weren't asking um, for a, for a trade deal. Uh, the reason being that these new challenges, this new economic partnership, uh, is something that Secretary Yellen has touched on, uh, something NSA Jake Sullivan. Uh, has touched on in terms of the new challenges, as I say, of the 21st century. Uh, And we think a broader economic partnership uh, is right at this time to help us put in place the things we need, the tools we need, the agreements we need to meet those new challenges. Uh, And so we were not pressing Uh, for a trade deal. And the Biden administration completely understand that. And if you look at the text of the declaration, there are various agreements on critical minerals, uh, which is a vital part of this new uh, set of challenges. There is work going forward uh, on supply chains and a whole range of AI cooperation.
12: That's the UK's ambassador to the United States, Karen Pierce. Ambassador, thank you very much.
18: Thank you.
12: This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the International Committee of the Red Cross says nearly 300 orphans have been rescued after being stranded for weeks amid the fighting between competing factions in Sudan. It's seven nineteen.
19: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit
4: today. Summer is heavily associated with going to the pool or the beach. But many children from low-income communities don't know how to swim, and it's generational.
5: Their families have never swam. They have a fear of the water.
4: How one nonprofit organization is changing that with free swimming lessons taught by teens for
0: teens. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Train service is suspended this morning on the Fairmount line of the commuter rail. Buses are replacing trains between Reedville and South Station so crews can replace a bridge over the tracks in Dorchester. Service will be suspended all weekend. Trains should be running again by Monday. An air quality alert remains in effect today on the south coast, Cape, and Islands. It's going to be cloudy with a high near 66. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. Tonight, more rain and thunderstorms with a low around 52. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, a high near 70 with showers possible. Sunday, mostly sunny and a high near 78. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CERTA Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's CERTA with a C. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
13: And I'm Asma Khalid. Smoke from Canadian wildfires is polluting the air throughout much of the eastern United States, with New York City and the Washington, D.C. area continuing to see heavy smoke.
12: In the Midwest, cities such as Cleveland and Detroit are also experiencing unhealthy levels of smoke. And these conditions are expected to last through at least the end of the day. So how do you protect yourself then with your family from the risks?
13: NPR's Maria Godoy joins us now with some advice. Good morning, Maria. Good morning. So the air, uh, I will say, at least around here in Washington, D.C., it's been rather unpleasant. But how dangerous is it?
4: Yeah, I'm in the D.C. suburbs as well, and my air quality was labeled as unhealthy all day yesterday, and it's definitely not pleasant because I've been sneezing, and my throat is sore, and in New York, it's been even worse. The city has had some of the poorest air quality in the world this week. One doctor compared it to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Mm. But this is temporary. So if you are relatively healthy, short-term exposure isn't likely to cause any long-term damage. But for someone who is in a high-risk group, like people with lung conditions like asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, this poor air can be a real threat. So what kind of threats? I mean, what dangers are you referring to? Well, so the smoky air is full of tiny particles that you breathe into your airways, and they get down into your lungs. They can even pass into your bloodstream. I spoke to Dr. Keith Brenner. He's a pulmonologist at Hackensack University Medical Center in New Jersey. He says for people with chronic lung disease, that can trigger a serious flare-up, and it's also a concern for people with cardiovascular disease.
20: There's been studies that track daily amounts of air pollution on days that were its highest There's a higher chance of dying of cardiovascular disease.
4: You know, there's lots of evidence that shows hospitalizations for asthma rise when the air quality is bad.
13: So, Maria, I understand the dangers you're describing, but uh, I would say not
4: breathing is really not an option, right, for
13: folks in this situation. (laughs) So what do you do when the air is this
4: poor? Well, so first, you can check the air quality where you live by going to airnow.gov. So that's an EPA site which has a color-coded meter that tells you just how bad things are and when to use caution. And if the air is bad, stay inside as much as possible. Keep the doors and windows closed. If you've got an air purifier, run it on high. They're really good at cleaning up the small smoke particles. And, you know, one thing, if you have to go outside, wait for it, mask up. Any mask? Any type of mask is all right? No, not really. I spoke with Lindsay Marr. She's an aerosols expert at Virginia Tech. She says the smoke particles, you know, those tiny particles are really small. In fact, they're roughly the same size as COVID particles.
8: Just like with COVID, the best mask is going to be a high quality, well-fitting, what we call respirator, an N95 or KN95 or KF94.
4: Mar says surgical masks and cloth masks can also help somewhat if they're close-fitted. But really, if you've got that N95 or K95, that's the best protection. Just make sure it fits properly. You know the drill. Cover your mouth and nose, please. (laughs) Unfortunately, we do know the drill. And luckily, I had some spare
13: KN95 still sitting around. (laughs) NPR's Maria Godoy, thank you so much.
4: Thank you.
12: The Ukrainian city of Kherson has faced a series of blows since Russia's invasion last year. including includes the Russian military presence, constant shelling, and now devastating flooding after a nearby dam was destroyed, leaving much of the city underwater. NPR's Greg Myrie has a story
21: from Ukraine. American aid worker David Tagliani has been coming to the aid of Ukrainians in danger since Russia invaded more than a year ago. We do evacuations. Tagliani works with a Ukrainian group called Stay Safe that's been delivering supplies and performing rescues by land. Now they're doing it by boat in the swollen waters of the Dnipro River that have flooded Kherson.
22: The way that Kherson is made up, is a bunch of islands in the middle of the Dnipro River, and all of those islands are
21: now inundated. So anybody that had land or a home there is now homeless. Many are farmers, stranded and isolated. Tegliani's group picks up more every day.
20: Something on the order of 20 people and
22: probably 10 pets from dogs and cats to, you know, chickens.
21: The city was flooded Tuesday when a major dam was destroyed about 40 miles upriver. Ukraine and Russia are blaming each other, though the Russians were in control of the dam and they've been inflicting hardship on residents of Kherson since the beginning of the war. First, the Russians seized Kherson in the early days of the fighting last year and maintained strict control, with many residents saying they were detained or even tortured. Last November, Russia withdrew from the city in the face of advancing Ukrainian troops.
8: Kherson is liberated, and we we were just so happy.
9: That was one of the happiest days of our lives.
21: Olina Nikolova is a journalist in Kherson. She and her family fled the city during the Russian occupation, but returned soon after its liberation. However, Joy in Kherson was short-lived. The Russians simply retreated to the eastern bank of the Dnipro River and began shelling Kherson almost daily. The bombardment has continued during the flooding. A rabbi was making this video about rescue efforts when a shell crashed nearby.
15: To bring people here from all the, the
21: river and the Russian.
7: Ter-
22: oh, you here. Give me
21: that. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Kherson on Thursday and said conditions were dire, citing the lack of drinking water in particular. Yet conditions are even worse on the east bank of the river, he said, adding that Russian forces had effectively abandoned civilians stuck in flooded homes. Some people are still in need of rescue on the Russian-controlled side, says Alexei Voronin. He runs the aid group Help People. They are sitting on the roof.
9: There are kids. There
20: are elderly people, and they are sitting and waiting because many of them don't know how to swim or too old for doing that. Voronin wants to
21: get them to safety, but he has a couple problems. His small motorboats are not powerful enough to make it across the strong river currents, and there are reports of Russian snipers nearby. But Voronin has a plan which involves getting night vision goggles and a bigger boat in order to make the rescue attempt under cover of darkness.
1: We are preparing, yeah, we are preparing for this night.
21: Meanwhile, Olina Nikolova says each successive blow against her son only strengthens the resolve of residents to stay and rebuild.
9: This is our homes, there are our families, our dear ones. We just must work for victory. We cannot live. This is our duty and work.
23: Yet
21: it's a struggle with no end in sight. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
13: And I'm Asma Khalid. Today's top
0: stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, Emerson Hospital in Concord has shut down an addiction treatment program to the dismay of patients and the doctor who ran it. It's 728. Coming to City Space Wednesday, June 21st, authors Matthew Desmond and Andre Deboz discuss their new books on poverty in America. Tickets are at wbrorg events.
24: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. Dataiq.com. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options. At progressive.com or 1-800-Progressive price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
17: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Former President Donald Trump is expected in a Florida courtroom next week following his indictment on more than a half dozen charges. The counts stem from the special counsel's investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents after he left the White House. Here's NPR's Kerry Johnson
7: we know the indictment came from a federal grand jury in miami that's been hearing from witnesses we do not have this document what we do have is a source familiar saying the indictment includes seven counts including willful retention of information related to the national defense at least one false statement charge and at least one charge related to obstruction
17: on social media trump says he will prove his innocence Authorities in Colorado say they've determined the cause of the state's most destructive wildfire on record. Joe Wirtz with Colorado Public Radio says that fire broke out in late 2021.
21: 100-mile-per-hour winds fanned flames from grasslands into suburban neighborhoods in Boulder County. Two people were killed, and more than 1,000 homes were torched. Investigators concluded the Marshall Fire had two ignition sources. One was embers from a debris fire that was buried nearly a week earlier. The second source came from a sparking power line that detached in high winds. No criminal charges will be filed. For NPR News, I'm Joe Wirtz in Denver. This is NPR News. This is
0: WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoi. Ridership on some sections of the MBTA is ticking back up. But as WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports, numbers are still not back to where they were before the pandemic. The T's analysis shows ridership across the system is about 68
7: percent of what it was pre-pandemic. While far from ideal, it has been increasing. The T's chief financial officer, Marianne O'Hara, told board members that most modes, with the exception of subways, hit their highest ridership since the pandemic in the first three months of this year.
10: Bus got to 79 percent, commuter rail is at 80 percent, and then ferry is also positive based on service levels, and the ride is also at a, a higher peak than any of the past 27 months.
7: O'Hara says the increase will help boost fare revenue, and she's hopeful that ridership will continue to rise in the coming months. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez.
0: Even as ridership climbs, the T still isn't sure when all the slow zones will go away. MBTA officials say a timeline to eliminate speed-restricted areas is not ready for release. 20% of the T is under some kind of speed restriction. A second person faces charges connected to Memorial Day violence on Revere Beach. A 19-year-old from Malden was arraigned yesterday on assault and weapons charges. A 17-year-old was charged earlier this week on multiple firearms charges. Three people were injured in shootings on the beach over the holiday weekend. The National Weather Service says an air quality alert remains in effect for the Cape Islands and South Coast today. That's because of the wildfire smoke coming from Canada. All that smoke could have an effect on New England's crops. Sheresh Gumire from the University of Connecticut says the smoke can stunt plant growth.
1: It's not only carbon dioxide, it has toxic gases like nitrous oxide, sulfur dioxide. Um, When we see such high level of smokes, the chances are high there is high ozone damage in crops. He
0: adds that while crop yields may be lower, that shouldn't affect prices too much. It's 733.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Russell's Garden Center, a shopping experience with annuals, perennials, organic fertilizers, unique gifts, toys, and more. A spring tradition for 146 years. Route 20, Wayland.
0: The Red Sox lost to the Guardians 10-3 to last night in Cleveland. The Sox are now 3-5 and in the month of June. They'll begin a three-game series with the Yankees tonight in New York. We'll have high temperatures in the mid-60s today under cloudy skies that may give way to rain and thunderstorms. Tonight, the rain and thunderstorms may continue as it falls to the low 50s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs near 70. More scattered showers are possible. Sunny on Sunday, though, and a high in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
24: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR
13: News. I'm Asma Khaled in Washington.
12: And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. A dispute over documents has turned into a historic indictment of a former president. Donald Trump is now facing federal charges related to the trove of classified documents taken from the White House to his Florida estate. His attorney, Jim Trustee, told CNN the case against Trump includes obstruction and false statement charges. He is innocent. I mean, everything about this case is absolutely rotten. Joining us now is NYU Law Professor and former Defense Department Special Counsel Ryan Goodman. Uh, Ryan, this uh, indictment is uh, not public yet, uh, given what we know about the case so far. How strong do you think it might
25: be? Based on the publicly available information, I think this case is going to be very strong. And we already have, unusually, um, a number of court filings by the Justice Department where they at least mapped out uh, some of the allegations. And then on top of that is some very good investigative reporting. So the biggest charge here is for the Espionage Act and the key language is the willful retention of national defense information and a failure to deliver it to the officials who are authorized to receive it. So, you know, I think many listeners know from those words alone, uh, the evidence that has been presented uh, so far is fits right within those four corners and I think that's why it's probably going to be a very strong case. And willful retention, what does that mean in in simpler language? So willful is the key um, in the sense that it means that the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that former President Trump was aware that he had the documents and then he deliberately kept them. Retention is just holding on to them.
12: Why do you think prosecutors sought an indictment in Florida instead of Washington?
25: It's a great question. It basically boils down to, I'd say, two factors. One is it's definitely true that the jury poll is not as favorable to the prosecutors in Florida, but that's not necessarily a legitimate factor for them. Just like Donald Trump can't say that he would like to move the jurisdiction of the case in Manhattan to another place, in New York because there are more Republican voters there. It's just not a factor that the law is going to recognize as legitimate for the prosecutors either. So that they can't really take that into account. And then the second is, the law basically requires the prosecutors to bring the case in the jurisdiction where the criminal conduct occurred, a bunch of this criminal conduct that's alleged occurred in Florida. If they try to bring it in DC, they might succeed, but if they got it wrong, there's a good chance that the entire case gets thrown out just on that basis. So even if the documents went from D.C. to Florida, it's
12: better to to file those charges in Florida.
25: Yes, and there's also this quirk within the legal system mm. that in D.C. there's odd case law, it's not representative of the rest of the country, that says if it's actually for an obstruction charge they say, do not bring the charge in the place where the obstruction was targeted, like the National Archives or the grand jury that was meeting there. You have to bring it where the conduct of the obstruction occurred. The bulk of that is obviously in Mar-a-Lago. So I think that's- So that Palm Beach County problem. possibly instead of Miami? That's right. Um, so that's it. that would be you know, an open question as to which part of Florida. Uh, but that's right. It would at least at a minimum need to be in that state. Trump uh, is
12: expected to appear in court a Tuesday in Miami. How is that process gonna go? How similar might it be to what we saw in New York?
25: I think it's gonna be very similar to the process in New York in the sense that they wanna be showing that Trump is treated like other um, defendants, but at the same time with you know hype, hyper heightened in, uh, security. So he's unlike other defendants in that sense and other defendants don't come with the Secret uh, Service. So. I think that's the only unusual part that we'll probably see. And then he'll have his opportunity to plead. Now,
12: many others have faced similar charges, but the circumstances in this case are very unique. Uh, Does that
25: help or hurt the defense? So I've actually looked at every single case that the Department of Justice has ever brought in the last like 20 plus years for uh, the Espionage Act under this particular provision. And I have to say, The alleged conduct for Trump is in the top quartile of the most egregious cases. So I think it's going to, that's why it's a very strong case for the prosecutors to bring. I think that in a normal situation, the person would plead and try to get a very minimum sentence, which that can also happen with the way in which our system works. All right, NYU Law Professor Ryan Goodman, thanks a lot. Thank you.
13: This next story is an especially grim reminder of the toll of war in Sudan. The United Nations Children's Agency says more than 60 children, most of them infants, died in the weeks since fighting erupted in Khartoum. UNICEF says they were at an orphanage that could not keep up with their needs. NPR's Aya Batraoui reports on an operation this week to
26: move nearly
13: 300 children from this orphanage to safety.
26: Aid workers say most of the children who died at the Maigoma Orphanage in Sudan's capital of Khartoum were just infants. When fighting erupted April 15th between Sudan's military and a heavily armed militia force, the clashes were so fierce that life in the capital came to a standstill. Hospitals were bombed or forced to close. Electricity and water supplies were cut in some areas. People had to shelter at home or join hundreds of thousands fleeing the country. UNICEF's deputy representative in Sudan, Mary Louise Eagleton, says most of the children at Mygoma were under two years old. They didn't have enough adults to feed them or hold them after the fighting erupted.
9: These children have been caught in the conflict, really in the heart of the conflict in Khartoum, these last six, seven weeks in really, really challenging conditions.
26: The UN Children's Fund and the International Committee of the Red Cross worked with Sudan's government to evacuate 297 children out of the orphanage this week. Video released from the Red Cross shows their vehicles relocating the children outside the capital. They now have electricity, clean water, milk, food, and more caregivers. Eight of the children were taken to a hospital for intensive care treatment. Eagleton says the children who perished in the orphanage over the past seven weeks died mostly from fever, dehydration, and malnutrition, an indirect result of the war.
9: Among the ones who died, as far as we understand, the large majority were under the age of three months, so very low birth weight and already very fragile. But then there were insufficient cares at the center because many had to flee with their own families when the fighting started.
26: UNICEF says it needs around $840 million to reach more children in Sudan.
9: This situation in the orphanage for children is really a microcosm of what's happening at national scale. So when we say 13 million children are in need of critical life-saving assistance, that's half of the children in Sudan.
26: But only a fraction of the UN's overall $3 billion funding appeal for Sudan has so far been met. Aya Botrawi, NPR News, Dubai.
13: This is NPR News.
0: It's a Friday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.10, we get reaction from Republicans on the news that former President Donald Trump is indicted for mishandling classified documents. Cloudy and mid-60s today with rain likely, along with thunderstorms this afternoon. Tonight, more rain possible in low 50s. Tomorrow, overcast with rain possible and temperatures near 70. It dries up for a sunny Sunday in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 56 degrees in Boston.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Perkins School for the Blind. Global leader in education for children with disabilities. Help more of them access education at perkins.org slash changinglives. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9
0: in Natick. There are more than 1,600 hotel jobs open in the Boston area right now. A new report from Indeed finds that a majority of hotels in the area have staffing shortages. Hotels say they're raising wages and giving workers flexible hours in an effort to hire more people. Texas-based Dave & Buster's will pay a $250,000 fine for breaking Massachusetts state labor laws. State Attorney General Andrea Campbell says the company let minors work without a permit. She also accuses Dave & Buster's of making employees work for longer than six hours without a meal break. New England lawmakers on Capitol Hill plan to introduce a bill that would support maple syrup makers in our region. The proposal would expand research and education into maple products. It would also put more money into marketing those products. It's 744.
24: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses and communities through tailored wealth management, banking and capital market solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. And from BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at britbox.com/npr. This is NPR.
13: Good morning. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid.
12: And I'm A. Martinez. Longtime NPR correspondent Wade Goodwin, known for his coverage of his home state of Texas, has died of cancer. He was 63. NPR's Debbie Elliott remembers Goodwin's reporting and his singular voice.
5: Wade Goodwin's soothing bass had a way of pulling you a little closer to the radio.
22: Compared to the nuclear blast that Biloxi and Gulfport experienced from Hurricane Katrina...
5: If his voice pulled you in, his storytelling kept you listening, with telling details that illuminate just what people are going through after a hurricane.
22: In Louisiana, you hug your NASCAR teddy bear when the big blow comes, even if you're a barrel-chested National Guardsman.
5: You know, Wade was a poet. NPR senior editor, Steve Drummond. The little detail, the little color or sound that he'd seen out in the
1: field, and it just made what he said sparkle.
5: Radio storytelling is what pulled Wade Goodwin into journalism. His first big assignment came in 1993. Good morning.
16: The FBI today begins the search for bodies in the ruins of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. Agents from the Bureau of
22: Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms rushed through their preparations for the assault on the Branch Davidian compound. They were spurred on by the knowledge that the element of surprise they'd been counting on was gone, and that heavily armed cult members were likely awaiting them a few hundred yards away.
5: NPR Managing Editor Vicki Walton-James says Wade brought a distinctive voice to the network's breaking news coverage.
7: He was really good at infusing humanity into those situations that sometimes people just want to turn away from. They don't want to think about
5: them. He also had a passion for stories about injustice, like the story of James Lee Woodard, who came to Wade's home studio in Dallas for an interview.
22: The very same day he'd been exonerated and gotten out of jail. My two big dogs, Miles and Rosie, came running into the room with stuffed toys in their mouths to demonstrate just what fine guard dogs they were. Come on, guys, leave the man alone, I said. Get out of here. Woodard stopped me, saying, no, I love dogs. I guess it's been a while, I said. Woodard teared up. Twenty-seven years, he whispered as he got down on both knees to play with Miles and Rosie. I stood there a while and watched... And then sat. Take your time, Mr. Woodard, I said. The interview can wait.
5: Wade was eager to share Texas cultural gems and bits of forgotten history and folklore. That earned him a bit of a cult following among NPR listeners who flat out loved the way he could spin a tale.
22: Joe Bowman was so good with a single-action revolver, he could turn an aspirin into powder at 20 yards.
5: Spanning three decades with NPR, Wade Goodwin gave voice to much joy and also much trauma. As he reflected 25 years later on the toll of the Oklahoma City bombing, Wade gave listeners a glimpse of what it was like to consider all that he'd seen.
22: When I tried to record the narrative for the story, describing the bagpiper playing Amazing Grace, my throat closed up at that part and I couldn't go on. I told the recording engineers to give me five, and then tried again. To my frustration, I choked up a second time. Eventually, I got through it, but someone must have called my editor, and a few minutes later, the phone rang. It's time to go home, he told me. You've done a good job, Goodwin. Go home to Texas. And so I did. Wade Goodwin, NPR News.
5: Good job indeed, Goodwin. Find rest at home. Debbie Elliott, NPR News
12: this is npr news
0: you're with wpr and it's friday that means it's time for story Corps coming up at 8 20 today a member of the shoshone nation in idaho remembers a beloved grandmother it's seven forty nine.
3: Hi, it's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO, here with a big thank you to everyone who gave so generously this week. Our goal was to find hundreds more people who would commit to giving every single month, which is what will sustain us for the long haul. And you responded. Your outpouring of support is galvanizing, and it will fuel our journalism. If you didn't have a chance to give and you'd still like to, go to WBUR.org and click the donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Thank you.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Donald Trump will become the first former president to face criminal charges from the federal government after being indicted for mishandling classified documents. Ukrainian officials say they're launching a counteroffensive against Russian forces. And in Boston, the blue line will be free for two months during the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Hone your business skills at the school ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News and World Report. Build your success story at babson.edu slash success.
0: Mid-60s and cloudy today with rain and thunderstorms likely. It's 56 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Simone
10: Lee at the ICA. C.Y. Lee was named one of Time's Top 100, now on view, ICABoston.org.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Free preschool will expand dramatically in Cambridge starting in the fall of 2024. And as WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the city recently released new details on how it plans to offer preschool slots to all 4-year-olds.
6: While Cambridge currently offers free preschool, seats are limited. The city uses a lottery to determine which 3- and 4-year-olds get into the roughly 700 slots. The expansion will open several hundred more seats. About 1,000 total will be available for 4-year-olds and up to 300 for 3-year-olds. The city plans to work with public schools, private childcare centers and in-home family childcare providers. Caitlin Malloy, a child care center director with the Newtown School in Cambridge, praises the public-private partnership model.
9: Logistically and fiscally, like, yes, take advantage of the stuff that already exists in in your community. Why build new infrastructure and take up those resources when you already have them? They're already there.
6: Cambridge is allocating about $20 million per year to fund the expansion, which launches in the fall of 2024. Most of that funding will support higher wages for teachers at private centers, who typically earn much less than a public school kindergarten teacher. Lisa Grant, director of the Cambridge Office of Early Childhood, hopes the expansion model will help the city retain the variety of preschool options already available in the area. What we don't
27: want to have happen is parents making child care
6: preschool choices
27: based on what they can afford. Different environments work well for different types of children, different
26: types of families.
6: Cambridge joins several other Massachusetts cities, including Boston and Somerville, that rely on public-private partnerships to expand preschool access. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young.
0: Emerson Hospital in Concord has shut down its outpatient medication-based addiction treatment program just a few years after it opened. The hospital says it's shifting its priorities and the program didn't have enough demand. But as WBUR's Lynn Joliker reports, the doctor who ran the program claims the reasons Emerson has cited for ending it don't add up. And she says the part of the state she served needs more treatment, not less.
2: Feeling good? How about your mood?
17: mood's fine.
28: Joey Kinghorn chats with Dr. Stephanie Stratigas as she prepares to give him an injection of Sublicade. That's the extended release form of the medication buprenorphine, which is considered a gold standard to treat opioid use disorder.
2: Any cravings or urges to use opioids or any thoughts about it?
8: not
15: at all. Good.
28: Kinghorn says he became addicted to OxyContin in 2005 after he broke his foot. He was able to stop taking the pills on his own. But in 2019, doctors prescribed the painkiller again after a procedure. Kinghorn fell deep into his addiction. About a year later, an online search led him to this clinic, located in an old white colonial at Emerson Hospital in Concord.
2: All right, so let's see your belly.
28: He's come here for an injection in his abdomen once a month.
17: It's done wonders for me. It
20: literally saved my life.
28: In addition to this clinic, Strategus ran a small one out of an Emerson medical building in Groton. She prescribed medication for drug, alcohol, and nicotine addictions. The Groton part of the program was initially funded by a federal grant responding to the rate of opioid overdoses in some neighboring towns. We sat on a big
2: coalition of people in the region to figure out what would be a meaningful intervention and how to save lives in that area, and it did measurably save lives.
28: The treatment program served a swath of suburban towns along the Route 2 corridor, including Acton and Littleton, and rural towns moving northwest through Middlesex County, including Pepperell and Townsend. But Emerson Health officials shut down the program Friday. After WBUR's inquiries, Emerson released a statement. Chief Medical Officer Dr. Barry Kitch said medication treatment for substance use disorders is more accessible than it was when Emerson started the program in 2019, due to things including telehealth. He said as a result, Emerson is focusing on emergency and inpatient behavioral health care. Kitch also said a limited number of patients were seen in the program, not enough to maintain the service in challenging post-pandemic economic conditions. Documents provided by the state show there are no other outpatient medication treatment programs for opioid use disorder in the area the program served. Strategist says she kept a full schedule seeing hundreds of patients, and she disagrees with Emerson's decision to end the program.
2: It doesn't make sense for the amount of good that this service does for the hospital for the community, for the patients.
28: Concern about the treatment program's future started a year ago. According to internal emails reviewed by WBUR, Emerson's finance department said the program was losing money. Strategists questioned the numbers. She claims the program's operating expenses were much lower than the hospital initially documented. Emerson Health declined to grant us interviews, and it did not respond to several of the questions we asked, including about the finances. In the chief medical officer's statement, he said Emerson Health has a long-standing commitment to support patients with behavioral health needs, including those addressing the challenge of addiction. But Strategist says Emerson's move means many people will have to go further for treatment, to cities including Boston, Lowell, and Leominster.
2: The more barriers you put in place, the less people are going to engage in this treatment. You have to make it really, really easy to get care in order for the care to be effective.
28: One of the people who helped lead the community response to the opioid crisis in rural Middlesex County is Susan Buchholz. She co-chairs a grassroots organization that advocates for more access to resources for vulnerable populations in north-central Massachusetts. Buchholz says Emerson's termination of Strategus and ending of the program hurts people in the region, which she calls a treatment desert. These are people who were just desperate
3: for services. They are in Emerson's backyard, and the fact that her facility grew so quickly with the number of patients is just evidence of how much unmet need
0: existed in that area.
28: A patient who lives near Emerson, who's also named Joe and doesn't want to use his last name for fear of future job discrimination, says he's stable on the treatment he's been getting from strategists. But he worries about others looking for help, people still in the throes of their addictions who don't have stable jobs like him and employers who will be understanding when they have to drive 30 minutes or more to get their addiction medication.
17: You lose your
22: job,
28: you get depressed, what do you do? You want to go get high. Joe says he doesn't understand what Emerson Health is doing. Why would you take out the one opportunity in this area? I love Emerson Hospital. I
22: don't understand why they're trying to turn away from this community. It just doesn't make sense.
28: Emerson says it's arranged for all of the program's patients to have seamless access to treatment elsewhere. According to Strategus, that's because she accepted a job at a program in Lemmonster, more than 20 miles west of Emerson and Concord, where she's been allowed to transfer her patients. She says most of her nearly 230 remaining patients are going with her.
2: Any redness from last time? No.
28: Okay. Including Joey Kinghorn. He'll have to travel a little further from his home in Littleton. And he's legally blind, so getting to treatment isn't easy
17: to begin with. My parents are going to have to sacrifice their time to get me there.
28: Strategists and community advocates say they worry about how the change will affect patients who face even bigger transportation barriers. Some don't have cars or have lost their licenses due to their addictions. And disruptions reduce the chance of recovery. For 90.9
19: WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUR-Tisbury, and 89one WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's
0: NPR news station. Donald Trump has become the first former president in U.S. history to face criminal charges brought by the federal government. It's Friday, June 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shunoy. Coming up, the former president says he's done nothing wrong and makes some false claims in a video posted to social media.
1: It's election interference at the highest level. There's never been anything like what's happened I'm an innocent man, I'm an innocent
0: person. We'll get reaction from the GOP. Plus, as wildfires in Canada continue to affect air quality across North America, we check how other parts of the world are dealing with dirty air. And this hour, states are working out the details of a historic agreement that's been struck to share water from the Colorado River. In sports, Red Sox lose. Rain and thunderstorms possible today in the 60s. It's 8.01.
3: Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Former President Donald Trump says he's been indicted by the Justice Department over his handling of classified documents. In a post on social media last night, Trump declared himself innocent and pledged to fight back against the charges. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports Trump is the first former president to face criminal charges from a government he once led.
7: Trump's lawyers say the indictment contains seven charges. They include willful retention of information related to the national defense, part of the Espionage Act, and obstruction and false statements charges. The former president's due in court in Miami on Tuesday afternoon. Special counsel Jack Smith isn't commenting on the indictment. The Justice Department probe began last year after Trump allegedly refused to return sensitive documents he had stored at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. This is the second time Trump has been indicted This year, he's fighting separate charges in Manhattan. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington.
3: Air quality is improving today for many in the northeastern United States as a dense plume of smoke from Canadian wildfires eases and shifts. But as NPR's Amy Held reports, other parts of the U.S.
4: are not out of the woods. The thick haze that circled and settled on much of the Northeast this week, disrupting life and making breathing a hazard, is dispersing.
24: David Roth is a forecaster with the Weather Prediction Center.
15: In New York City, they'll be completely out of it by the time we get later today and tonight.
24: The air is still dangerously
4: smoky in parts. Philadelphia has canceled in-person school today.
15: Portions of Delaware, Maryland, southern Pennsylvania, and parts of Ohio there could be obvious concentrations of smoke into this evening.
4: The smoke is moving westward with air quality alerts extending as far as Indianapolis. And the source, hundreds of Canadian wildfires are still burning out of control. Amy Held,
3: NPR News. The Ukrainian military continues to fight back against Russian forces on a number of fronts. There are reports of heavy fighting in the Zaporizhia area of Ukraine. Military experts say the region will be the focus of Ukraine's long-awaited counter-offensive. The BBC's Paul Adams has more.
15: There is a lot of images appearing showing armored Ukrainian units Some of them using leopard tanks, which was obviously one of the principal uh, requests and demands of the Ukrainians from their Western backers. Those leopard tanks do now seem to be in action on the battlefront south of the city of Zaporizhia. What the Ukrainians are doing is they are probing forward in a number of directions against what are very heavily fortified Russian lines.
3: That's the BBC's Paul Adams reporting. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Chenoy. The blue line of the T will be free for nearly all of the summer. It'll be a free ride while the Sumner Tunnel is closed between July 5th and August 31st. Transit officials want people to consider options other than driving while the tunnel is closed. Some of those other options include the East Boston Ferry. It'll be free as well. Tolls on the Tobin Bridge and Ted Williams Tunnel tunnel will also be lowered while the Sumner is closed. Two former Plymouth County prosecutors face possible discipline over a case where they wrote about a defendant in racist emails. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports the case involved a woman charged with murdering her parents. Francis
9: Choi's convictions on murder and arson charges were vacated three years ago after the prosecutor's racist emails came to light. A petition for discipline has been filed, saying that attorneys John Bradley and Karen O'Sullivan should be sanctioned for disparaging Choi and her family. The petition also cites the pair for withholding potentially exculpatory evidence during Choi's trial for the 2003 fire in her family's Brockton home that killed her parents. Choi spent. 17 years in prison before her convictions were vacated. The State Board of Bar Overseers will now review the petition and could recommend possible penalties up to disbarment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. A Boston man who
0: spent nearly two decades in prison before being released is suing the city. Sean Jenkins was convicted on a murder charge in 2005 that was later dropped after revelations of police and prosecutorial misconduct. Jenkins alleges false arrest and malicious conviction by law enforcement. He's seeking unspecified damages. An unused lot in the Charlestown Navy Yard has been transformed into a contemporary art installation. It's called a Lot Lab, and it's the work of the Boston-based arts nonprofit called Now and There. WB War's Ariel Gray reports the goal is to bring the community together.
28: The first three artists created works on the theme of mending and repair. Now in there, executive director Kate Gilbert says public art plays an important part in restoring connections between people.
29: Art is a necessity, and when it's in all of our spaces and accessible to everyone, it can bring all that art brings the joy, the curiosity, the wonder, and hopefully, you know, some new ways of being
9: together.
28: The installations by Boston area artists Sam Fields and Maciel Grion. And international artist Gada Amer will be up until October 31st. For 90.9 WBUR,
10: I'm Ariel Gray. It's 806. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic
0: prosperity regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. The Red Sox fell to the Guardians 10-3 last night in Cleveland. Boston starting pitcher Matt Dermody was designated for assignment after the game, which means he was essentially cut from the big league squad. Before the game, he came under fire for a homophobic tweet he made in 2021. Sox general manager Heim Bloom defended the choice to have Dermody start last night's game. Tonight, the Sox will visit the Yankees. An air quality alert from the Canadian wildfires remains in effect on the south coast cape and islands cloudy with afternoon showers and storms today it'll be in the 60s more showers and storms possible overnight with temperatures in the 50s cloudy with more showers tomorrow in the upper 60s sunny on sunday and in the 70s it's 56 degrees in boston thanks for starting your day with WBR
12: this is morning edition from NPR news amy e. martinez in culver city california
13: and i'm asmakhala in washington Former President Donald Trump is now a defendant in a case filed by the government he once led.
12: Trump faces a federal criminal indictment related to sensitive documents found at his Florida resort with charges that include conspiracy and false statements he's due in federal court in Miami on Tuesday.
13: NPR justice correspondent Carrie Johnson has been following this story and she joins us now to help us understand the latest. Carrie, it's great to have you with us.
12: Thank you.
7: Happy to be
13: here. Carrie, this investigation has been going on now for more than a year, and it's now resulted in the first federal criminal charges against a former president. What do we know about these specific charges?
7: This indictment is still under seal, but lawyers for Donald Trump have been describing some of the charges. They say there are seven counts. They include willful retention of information related to national defense, part of the Espionage Act. There's at least one charge related to obstruction and at least one other related to false statements. But it's not clear whether anyone else is included in this indictment. We do know prosecutors have been investigating aides to Trump who may have moved boxes at that Mar-a-Lago resort.
13: So how is Donald Trump himself reacting to this indictment? Trump told
7: the world about the FBI search of his Florida home back in August 2022, and he told the world again last night that he had been notified about the indictment. Trump says he is a, quote, innocent man. He says it's a dark day for the U.S., and he called these charges political interference because they're coming in the middle of his campaign for the White House in 2024.
13: Mm-hmm. So what happens next? Uh, what's the sort of next step in this legal process?
7: Donald Trump has been summoned to show up at the federal courthouse in Miami at 3 p.m. on Tuesday. His lawyer Jim Trusty told CNN last night that Trump will not be arrested, but he might go through processing at the courthouse and deal with other red tape behind the scenes. Over the next few days, the U.S. Marshals Service and the Secret Service are going to do a lot of planning to make sure that courthouse is secure.
13: So Carrie, this is the first federal indictment of a former president, but it is the second indictment for Donald Trump. Uh, Trump was previously indicted earlier this year, just a couple months ago, by prosecutors in New York. So, does that case offer a kind of blueprint for what might happen here?
7: Yeah, in many ways, yes, those charges in New York came from Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. There was a lot of security worked out for Trump's appearance at the courthouse in lower Manhattan. And again, those are charges that relate to falsifying business records for alleged hush money payments to Stormy Daniels shortly before the 2016 election. This new federal case from the Justice Department is more serious legally, and it would carry more significant penalties and punishments too. Hmm.
13: So Carrie, much of this news seems to be coming from the former president himself. I am curious what the justice department is saying about the charges.
7: Nothing. The special counsel, Jack Smith, has not said a word since he was appointed last winter. He had no immediate comment last night. Remember, Smith is a registered independent, former war crimes prosecutor, who once led the unit at the Justice Department that prosecutes corrupt public officials. Of course, it's possible the Justice Department will move to unseal the indictment as a matter of public interest before Tuesday. Not clear they intend to do that at this point. And Attorney General Merrick Garland has said the special counsel acts outside of day-to-day supervision at justice. He's the one to speak.
13: Real quick, Carrie, this is all going on during the 2024 presidential campaign. So does that mean Trump will be on trial while the campaign is underway?
7: It does certainly seem, given how the wheels of justice grind, that there will be legal proceedings. It's not clear a trial will be underway at, during the campaign at this point.
13: All right. That's NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Already, a number of Republicans have been quick to react to the indictment of the former president. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy jumped to his defense, calling it a, quote, grave injustice. But some other key Republicans, like Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, have been noticeably silent, at least thus far. So how will the broader GOP deal with the fact that its 2024 frontrunner is facing federal charges? For more on that, we turn now to conservative columnist Jonah Goldberg. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with your own reaction to the indictment. Uh,
16: you're surprised but not shocked. I mean, the timing was such as it was. And he um, kind of knew that something was coming. But it, it sounds like it's a pretty serious set of indictments. But we don't know exactly what's in them yet.
13: OK. So Trump is now the first former president in U.S. history to face federal charges. Uh, he is also, though, running for re-election. So what does this all mean for that election campaign?
16: Oh, it means everything is going to be uglier and stupider for a little while. Um, you already saw that, you know, sort of the canary in the coal mine of, of American political dysfunction is, of course, Twitter. And hmm. <laughs> so you saw that last night with an enormous number of people getting way ahead of the facts, um, you know, as Kevin McCarthy did. Um, and, uh, you know, the only two Republican presidential candidates to actually take a different tack other than this is a political, you know, witch hunt and all that nonsense, it were uh, Chris Christie and, and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, mm-hmm. which I think is at minimum a good sign, right? I mean, because what you need is you need some oxygen out there to actually have an argument. And if, if the entire GOP rallies around this idea that this is a political prosecution against the, his leading politi- Biden's leading political opponent, it leaves no room for any Republican to have to defend their position, to have an argument, to to deal with uncomfortable facts in internal conversations on the right. And so I'm all in favor of, of anything that smashes up that sort of intellectual or ideological Monopoly.
13: So I want to ask you a little bit more about what the indictment means for Trump's Republican primary challengers. Uh, you know, specifically for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, He's seen to be Trump's biggest rival for the GOP presidential nomination. He put out a tweet decrying what he called the "quote weaponization of federal law enforcement."
16: Yeah. So I think it's 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 very interesting. We have three different Repu- major Republican candidates running who are critical of Trump. Mm-hmm. One is Chris Christie, who's going all in. Trump the man, Trump the legend, everything about Trump, Trump's family, all was fair game for Chris Christie. Mike Pence says that the administration that he worked in, he just won't call it the Trump administration.
13: Though he was vice president.
16: Right, which he was vice president of. His administration was great, but uh, January 6th was very, very bad. That's Mike Pence's position. And Ron DeSantis is going after the administration, but not the man. He's saying that the that Trump's record fell short on what he promised, and DeSantis can deliver the things that Trump only promised. A wall, immigration stuff, all that kind of thing. And so the different strategies have to do with the fact that they're going after different voters. DeSantis wants to get about half of the coalition that is in favor of, that is likes Trump, um, is not the diehards. They're the ones who are like, they rally to him when the press picks on him, they rally to him uh, you know, after that Mar-a-Lago search, but they're they're not that hardcore. Shoot 'em on Fifth Fifth Avenue base, and that's the question: is how many of those voters can these guys pick off during a rally around Trump moment?
13: Give mm-hmm. any sense, real quick, in about just 10 seconds or so, for you know, any of this will make a difference thus far, legal troubles-wise.
16: I think long term it makes a difference, but it really depends on what the actual facts and allegations are in the indictments.
19: Mm -hmm.
13: All right. That's conservative columnist Jonah Goldberg. He's editor-in-chief of The Dispatch. Thanks so much. Great to be here. This next story is an especially grim reminder of the toll of war in Sudan. The United Nations Children's Agency says more than 60 children, most of them infants, died in the weeks since fighting erupted in Khartoum. UNICEF says they were at an orphanage that could not keep up with their needs. NPR's Aya Batrawi reports on an operation this week to move nearly 300 children from this orphanage to safety.
26: Aid workers say most of the children who died at the Maigoma Orphanage in Sudan's capital of Khartoum were just infants. When fighting erupted April 15th between Sudan's military and a heavily armed militia force, the clashes were so fierce that life in the capital came to a standstill. Hospitals were bombed or forced to close. Electricity and water supplies were cut in some areas. People had to shelter at home or join hundreds of thousands fleeing the country. UNICEF's deputy representative in Sudan, Mary Louise Eagleton, says most of the children at Maigoma were under two years old. They didn't have enough adults to feed them or hold them after the fighting erupted.
9: These children have been caught in the conflict, really in the heart of the conflict in Khartoum these last six, seven weeks in really, really challenging conditions.
26: The UN Children's Fund and the International Committee of the Red Cross worked with Sudan's government to evacuate 297 children out of the orphanage this week. Video released from the Red Cross shows their vehicles relocating the children outside the capital. They now have electricity, clean water, milk, food, and more caregivers. Eight of the children were taken to a hospital for intensive care treatment. Eagleton says the children who perished in the orphanage over the past seven weeks died mostly from fever, dehydration, and malnutrition, an indirect result of the war.
9: Among the ones who died, as far as we understand, the large majority were under the age of three months, so very low birth weight and already very fragile. But then there were insufficient cares at the center because many had to flee with their own families when the fighting started.
26: UNICEF says it needs around $840 million to reach more children in Sudan.
9: This situation in the orphanage for children is really a microcosm of what's happening at national scale. So when we say 13 million children are in need of critical life-saving assistance, that's half of the children in Sudan.
26: But only a fraction of the UN's overall $3 billion funding appeal for Sudan has so far been met. Aya Botrawi, NPR News, Dubai.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition. As wildfires in Canada continue to affect air quality in parts of North America, including here in the Boston region, we look at how other parts of the world cope with dirty air. It's
11: 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, Photography from the Black Atlantic, opens June 17th. More at PEM.org.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi.
11: I'm Meghna Chakrabarty.
5: This is On Point. I'm Tisiana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong.
28: I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's Here and Now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host
10: of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly
0: at WBUR.org. Thanks. The USS Constitution will take a trip through Boston Harbor today. Today's voyage is in celebration of Women's Veterans Day. It was 75 years ago that women were first legally allowed to serve in the U.S. Armed Forces. Old Ironsides will perform a 21-gun salute near Castle Island in South Boston at about 11.30 this morning. There will also be a 17-gun salute in Charlestown. An air quality alert remains in effect today on the South Coast, Cape, and Islands. It's going to be cloudy with a high near 66. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. Tonight, more rain and thunderstorms with a low around 52. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, a high near 70 with showers possible. Sunday, mostly sunny and a high near 78. Right now, it's 57 degrees in Boston.
24: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One offering their premium travel card Venture X. Capital One. What's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security, more information is available online at Carnegie.org. From Paycom, an HR and payroll tool, Designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com/slash radio. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. It's
13: morning edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid.
12: And I'm Martinez. It was big news when the seven states that share the Colorado River announced an agreement to temporarily cut water use. It averted a crisis as Lake Mead was in danger of falling so low that it could no longer generate hydroelectric power. Now, it's only a temporary solution, and the river states are working now on a long-term deal. Here's Luke Runyon, member station KUNC in Colorado. Luke, uh, temporary solution? Were there temporary winners and losers
20: from it? Well, there aren't really any losers here, and that's thanks mostly to a lot of federal money. California, Arizona, and Nevada agreed to leave a lot of water in the river so Lake Mead will stop shrinking. Uh, And that takes pressure off the other states who won't have to make more cutbacks than they already have. Uh, So the agreement was relatively easy to reach because there's a billion dollars in the Inflation Reduction Act to give water users money in exchange for not taking water. So some users are being compensated, Uh, but it is temporary. The money only lasts for three years. All right, so what happens after three years? Well, they're gonna need a new agreement. Uh, Yesterday, I met with the top water negotiators for six of the seven Colorado River Basin states and they told me that formal negotiations are gonna start next week. Uh, So they're giving themselves some time to come up with a new deal, one that's supposed to be longer term, like for decades. Decades, it sounds a a little harder to negotiate than a three-year temporary deal. Yeah, definitely. Um, For one, they're going to have to be a lot more people involved. Uh, Previous agreements on how to share the Colorado have, for the most part, ignored the 30 Native American tribes in the basin. Uh, And there's wide agreement that that can't keep happening. Stephen Rowe Lewis is the governor for the Hilo River Indian community in Arizona. All basin tribes need to be at the table. It's no longer acceptable for the United States to meet with seven basin states separately. He's saying that federal leaders can no longer only negotiate with states over water in the river. Tribes have legal rights to water that have to be taken into account, and no one really knows how adding tribal nations is going to affect the shape of this new deal. So it's a big unknown.
12: And that's probably not the only thing that's going to make it tougher to reach this decades-long agreement.
20: Yeah, because really what's needed is permanent reductions in water use. they simply can't keep drawing on the Colorado like they have in the past. So reductions are what climate scientists say are necessary. And there's just not as much water in the river as there was a hundred years ago when this whole river sharing system was set up. And a lot of that is because of climate change, making the river smaller. Uh, and fully grappling with a warming climate is emerging as a big focus of this next round of talks. Uh, here's Becky Mitchell. She's the state of Colorado's top water negotiator.
9: For me, it's important that the next set of guidelines really acknowledge that climate change is real and they've, it's resulted in significant
24: changes to the Colorado River system.
20: No one really knows how much water is going to be in the Colorado going forward, but they know over the long term it's going to be less than the states are drawing out now. On paper, people already have rights to more water than currently flows down the river. So in the new agreement, someone is going to feel the pain and simply not going to get some of the water that they have access to right now.
12: That's KUNC's Luke Runyon. He's the host of the podcast Thirst Gap about the Colorado River. Luke, thanks. Thank you so much.
13: Time now for StoryCorps. Today, we have a conversation from Brigham City, Utah. When Tim Bibbu Davis is Native American, a member of the Shoshone Nation. Growing up in the 1950s, her family moved from city to city, but most summers they'd visit the reservation.
8: It was like a totally different world. I remember tiny kids riding bareback on horses, lickety split down the road, little boys with long braids, and lots of dogs. <laughs>
13: Most of all, Davis remembers spending time with her grandma, Lillian. She talked about her at StoryCorps with her daughter, Heather.
8: She was this tiny little lady. I want to say she might have been like 4'11", who wore this great big sun bonnet made out of straw. And she wrapped her hair up in a bandana. I'd never seen her without it. I really thought she was bald. (laughs) And when she would look at you, she would have her little glasses perched at the end of her nose, and she'd look over the top of them, and then she'd smile. Never once did I ever see her mad. She would tell us stories and sing to us. She would make simple things into things that were really fun. Mm -hmm. She sounds fun. Oh, she was. But her life was hard. She was 12 years old when she was married. And it wasn't uncommon at that time. Uh huh. She did a lot of scraping of hides and making gloves, trying to earn money that way. And going out into the fields, picking tomatoes and corn and peaches and cherries. And during the wintertime, she would sew gloves and beaded stuff and sell it, barely keeping her head above water. But she was very generous. She always gave, and she lived by that. That when you give, you give the best that you have, even though it might put her in a bad situation. What did she die of? Oh, God, everything. I remember Grandma telling me that she may have only been like 58, but she looked like she was about 70. Mm-hmm. Life took its toll out on her. When I saw her at the viewing, she was so tiny. And that's when I remember I saw her hair. She had this gorgeous, gorgeous hair, and it was brown. She looked just like an angel. I just wish you could have seen her, and I wish she could have lived to see you.
13: That was Gwen Timbimbu Davis with her daughter Heather. Lillian Pabawina Pubaji is buried in the Tribal Cemetery in Washakie, Utah. This interview is
24: archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru and its retailers partnering with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society this June to give blankets and messages of hope to patients facing cancer. Learn more at subaru.com care. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later, because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at dignitymemorial.com.
13: This is NPR News. Today's
0: top stories are next. The WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBUR app in your app store today. It's 829. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, a
19: performance-driven investment manager navigating challenging financial markets around the globe since 1926. Learn more at LoomisSales.com.
17: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Former President Donald Trump says he's been indicted on charges stemming from the special counsel's investigation into his handling of classified documents after leaving the White House. His lawyers say Trump is facing seven counts, including one related to obstruction. Trump is expected to appear in court in Miami next week. Poor air quality remains an issue for millions of people in the eastern half of the U.S. Advisories are posted again today because of smoke from wildfires in Canada, though forecasters say conditions should improve in some areas. NPR's Maria Godoy reports.
4: Young children, people with lung and heart conditions, and the elderly are among those considered most at risk from fine particles in wildfire smoke. Those particles can settle in the airways and even enter the bloodstream. To stay safe, check the air quality where you live at airnow.gov. That's an EPA site which has a color-coded meter that tells you how bad things are in your area and when to use caution. If the air quality is bad, stay inside as much as possible. Keep the doors and windows closed. If you've got an air purifier, run it on high. Don't burn candles or vacuum because that can add more particles to your indoor air. And drink lots of water. The fluid keeps your eyes, nose, and throat moist, which can help with irritation. Maria Godoy. NPR News. This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. An outpatient treatment program at Emerson Hospital in Concord is closed. It provided medications for opioid and alcohol addictions. As WBUR's Lynn Jolliker tells us, patients and advocates are concerned about losing the service just a few years after it started. Emerson Health says it'll focus on inpatient and emergency
28: behavioral health care because medication addiction treatment has become more accessible and the program didn't have enough demand. The doctor who ran it disagrees and says patients will have to travel to cities including Boston and Lemonster. Joe is a patient who doesn't want to use his last name for fear of discrimination. He's worried about new people seeking treatment.
22: They want to get clean. They want to get their life together. Where are they going to go to make this happen? I love Emerson Hospital. I don't understand why they're trying to turn away from this community. It just doesn't make sense. The need is here.
28: The program also served rural towns out of a clinic in Groton. Community advocates say the area is a treatment desert. For 90.9
0: WBUR, I'm Lynn Joliker. Boston's three public exam schools are getting more racially diverse. Data reviewed by the Boston Globe show the percentage of Black and Latino students steadily increased over the last three years at those schools. That's after the city adopted new admission factors which consider income and the neighborhoods where Applicants live. Boston is getting ready for its first Pride parade since 2019. It'll roll through the South End and Back Bay tomorrow. Joe Tregilio is the vice president of the new group leading the parade called Pride for the People. They say the event will be a time for the community to connect after three years.
8: LGBTQ people are, are under attack nationally. So I think that it's just going to be important for so many reasons, you know, for celebration for empowerment, for a sense of solidarity, and just, you know, joy.
0: Tregilio says the organizers focused on making the festivities inclusive. It's 833.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash
0: WBUR. The Red Sox fell into the Guardians 10-3 to last night in Cleveland. Tonight, the Sox begin a weekend series with the Yankees in the Bronx. The Cape Cod Baseball League season begins tomorrow. The league is marking its 100th anniversary this year. Three of the original teams still playing Chatham Falmouth, and Hyannis will have individual celebrations during the summer. Michael Lane is the Cape League's Director of Public Relations. He says games will be played with a special 100th anniversary baseballs, and they'll make a great souvenir for anyone who catches a foul ball.
14: Anyone who attends a game, you can show up, free attendance, and walk out with a collector's item that hopefully will carry some value for another 100 years until we have the 200-year anniversary.
0: The Cape League season runs through the second week of August. Air quality alerts remain in effect from Canadian wildfires today on the South Coast and Cape and Islands. We'll have high temperatures in the mid 60s under cloudy skies that may give way to rain and thunderstorms. Tonight, the rain and thunderstorms may continue as it falls to the low 50s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs near 70. More scattered showers are possible. Sunny on Sunday, though, and a high in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston. Your WBUR.
24: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Zoom, Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. And from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid in Washington, D.C.
12: And I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. There are some 400 wildfires burning in Canada, and hundreds of U.S. firefighters have joined the battle. President Biden has directed the National Interagency Fire Center to promptly respond to Canadian requests for additional help. Reporter Emma Jacobs has the latest from Canada.
29: I'm here to provide you with uh, another update. Over the last several days, Chief Irene Neposh of the Waswanipi First Nation has been posting regular updates on Facebook in English and in Cree.
7: On the evacuations, we've completed level 2A and 2B, meaning the people with medical conditions have been evacuated, and also the children, elders, and pregnant women.
29: She's speaking to residents who remain in the community as well as those evacuated or on the road to Quebec City, 300 miles to the south.
7: The ones that are uh, still remaining in Waswanapie I need to ask you to uh, reduce the use of gas, or if in the case we do need to evacuate, you'll have to work with what you've got.
29: The fires have led to the full or partial evacuation of several small communities in the north of Quebec. Most of the smoke affecting the East Coast has been coming from this region, but fires are still active across a swath of Canada from west to east. There are over 400 active fires across the country. In Quebec, cars were backed up on the road from Chibougamau, which ordered all 7,500 residents to evacuate earlier this week. Chabougamau's Mayor Manon Sire said she knows it's difficult for people to remain patient, but they should expect to remain for several days.
18: Malheureusement, on pense que c'est peu probable.
29: Quebec's Premier Francois Legault said the roughly 13,000 total evacuees shouldn't expect to go home before significant rain arrives to aid firefighters on Monday night. That's despite the addition of hundreds of firefighters who began arriving yesterday from France and the United States. With over 100 wildfires burning in Quebec alone, they will assist fire crews there and members of the Canadian military already on the ground. For NPR News, I'm Emma Jacobs in Montreal.
12: Thick smoke from those intense wildfires in Canada continues to drift across much of the United States, blanketing many cities with a toxic haze. That's triggered days of air quality warnings in New York, Washington, and other cities. Schools across the East have been canceling outdoor activities. Vulnerable people have been advised to stay indoors. Flights have been grounded in some places due to poor visibility. And also a number of Broadway shows and sporting events have been canceled.
13: Yeah, that's right. Margaret Ciarino from New York City says the streets have been unusually empty and the journey to work lately has been, quote, wild.
23: The sky was bright orange yesterday, and everyone on the subway was, like, masking up. Christy Balazzi
12: in Falls Church, Virginia, says she hasn't been going outside much.
9: The haze has been
13: really ominous in how it looks outside, and it's been hard to breathe when walking. This is unusual in this part of the country, but very familiar to many folks in other parts of the world. For millions, toxic air quality is a daily reality. Some cities have learned to combat pollution, while others are learning to live with it. First, we hear from NPR's Ada Peralta in Mexico City, then Anthony Kuhn in Seoul, and reporter Shalu Yedev in New Delhi.
23: Mexico City was once known as the most polluted city in the world. The air quality here is still bad. Today the AQI reached 123, which is unhealthy for people with respiratory problems. And you feel it. Your eyes get watery, your throat scratchy, and the sky looks hazy. But in the 90s and early 2000s, air quality would routinely hit extremely bad levels, with AQI in the 200s. So how did it get better? Essentially, the government got tough on pollution with a complex system of countermeasures. Less efficient cars are allowed limited time on the road, and as soon as the air quality gets bad—either too high a concentration of ozone or particulate matter—the government orders even newer, more efficient cars off the streets. They order factories to reduce their output, food vendors are prohibited from using charcoal, and road work stops. If the air quality doesn't improve, the countermeasures get tougher. It can mean residents can't drive to work or school, for example, so they have to walk, bike, or take public transportation. If it gets bad enough, government offices are shut down. And this program has made a huge difference. In the 90s, Mexico City faced terrible air every month. Mexicans used to joke the air was so bad so often that birds would die mid-flight. Currently, really bad days are rare. We only have a handful of environmental contingencies each year.
1: I'm Anthony in Seoul, where my air quality app is telling me the air quality right now is 70, which is moderate, not terrible. I used to report from Beijing, where until recent years air pollution was often off the charts. I used to live in an old neighborhood and burn coal in stoves to heat my home. That was before we had apps and air quality monitors, and many people around me had difficulty telling the difference between weather and pollution, fog and smog. Sure, it was unhealthy, but I saw it as part of the story I was covering and living. In recent years, Beijing's air has improved as the government has moved factories out of the city center and phased out coal stoves. When I moved to Seoul four and a half years ago, I thought I was leaving the smog behind, but I was wrong. It followed me. Some of South Korea's air pollution blows over from China. A lot of it is homemade. Yoon song yol who took over as South Korea's president last year, has said that by the end of his five-year term, he'll get air quality up to the level of London or Paris. So far this year, though, we've had plenty of bad air days of air quality of a hundred or worse not much I can do on those except stay indoors, crank up the air purifiers and wait for a stiff northwest wind to blow the smog away.
30: This is Shalu in New Delhi, opening my curtains to see what it looks like outside. The sun is out, the sky is looking blue, but there's also a fair bit of dust flying around as morning traffic builds up here. The AQI app on my phone tells me that the air outside today is unhealthy for sensitive groups. The AQI level is 117, which is, frankly, not alarming enough for Delhiites to be worried. And that's because we have it so much worse in winters when the AQI level sometimes goes beyond 700. When it's that time of the year, I often don't need the app to tell me how grim it is outside. It's so bad that my eyes burn as soon as I wake up. I can taste the pollutants in my mouth and the lungs feel like an overworked machine that needs a break. In fact, some studies suggest that breathing in the Delhi air is as dangerous as smoking about two dozen cigarettes a day. Emissions from factories, vehicles and burning of stubble by farmers, all these factors come together to make Delhi's air toxic. And the government's efforts to relieve the problem, restricting building construction and traffic to try and mitigate the pollution isn't really enough.
12: That was Ada Peralta in Mexico City, Anthony Kuhn in Seoul, Shalu Yadav in New Delhi. This is NPR News.
0: You've reached the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes on the Marketplace Morning Report, demand on the electric grid in Texas is expected to break records this summer. And for the first time, the state will rely on renewable energy to help meet that peak demand. Cloudy in mid-60s today with rain likely, along with thunderstorms this afternoon. Tonight, more rain possible in low 50s. Tomorrow, overcast with rain possible in temperatures near 70. It dries up for a sunny Sunday in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston.
11: WBUR supporters include Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com and Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
0: Boston will be one of the first cities in North America included in a new car-sharing program from Uber. It'll allow people to rent out their car through the Uber app. The program is already running in Australia. Uber says it'll debut here and in Toronto in the coming months. Bedford-based research nonprofit MITRE is getting more than $2 million from the state to create a high-tech ocean tank. That tank will be used to test marine robots and energy projects. The money is coming from the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative. It's 845.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR.
13: Good morning. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid.
12: And I'm A. Martinez. Longtime NPR correspondent Wade Goodwin, known for his coverage of his home state of Texas, has died of cancer. He was 63. NPR's Debbie Elliott remembers Goodwin's reporting and his singular voice.
5: Wade Goodwin's soothing bass had a way of pulling you a little closer to the radio.
22: Compared to the nuclear blast that Biloxi and Gulfport experienced from Hurricane Katrina...
5: If his voice pulled you in, his storytelling storytelling kept you listening, with telling details that illuminate just what people are going through after a hurricane.
22: In Louisiana, you hug your NASCAR teddy bear when the big blow comes, even if you're a barrel-chested National Guardsman.
5: You know, Wade was a poet. NPR senior editor, Steve Drummond. The little detail, the little color or sound that he'd seen out in the field,
1: and it just made what he said sparkle.
5: Radio storytelling is what pulled Wade Goodwin into journalism. His first big assignment came in 1993. Good morning.
16: The FBI today begins the search for bodies in the ruins of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. Agents from the Bureau of Alcohol,
22: Tobacco, and Firearms rushed through their preparations for the assault on the Branch Davidian compound. They were spurred on by the knowledge that the element of surprise they'd been counting on was gone and that heavily armed cult members were likely awaiting them a few hundred yards away.
5: NPR Managing Editor Vicki Walton-James says Wade brought a distinctive voice to the network's breaking news coverage.
7: He was really good at infusing humanity into those situations that sometimes people just want to turn away from. They don't want to think about them.
5: He also had a passion for stories about injustice, like the story of James Lee Woodard, who came to Wade's home studio in Dallas for an interview.
22: The very same day he'd been exonerated and gotten out of jail, My two big dogs, Miles and Rosie, came running into the room with stuffed toys in their mouths to demonstrate just what fine guard dogs they were. Come on, guys, leave the man alone, I said. Get out of here. Woodard stopped me, saying, no, I love dogs. I guess it's been a while, I said. Woodard teared up. Twenty-seven years, he whispered as he got down on both knees to play with Miles and Rosie. I stood there a while and watched... And then sat. Take your time, Mr. Woodard, I said. The interview can wait.
5: Wade was eager to share Texas cultural gems and bits of forgotten history and folklore. That earned him a bit of a cult following among NPR listeners who flat out loved the way he could spin a tale.
22: Joe Bowman was so good with a single action revolver, he could turn an aspirin into powder at 20 yards.
5: Spanning three decades with NPR, Wade Goodwin gave voice to much joy and also much trauma. As he reflected 25 years later on the toll of the Oklahoma City bombing, Wade gave listeners a glimpse of what it was like to consider all that he'd seen.
22: When I tried to record the narrative for the story, describing the bagpiper playing Amazing Grace, my throat closed up at that part and I couldn't go on. I told the recording engineers to give me five and then tried again. To my frustration, I choked up a second time. Eventually, I got through it, but someone must have called my editor, and a few minutes later, the phone rang. It's time to go home, he told me. You've done a good job, Goodwin. Go home to Texas. And so I did. Wade Goodwin, NPR News.
5: Good job indeed, Goodwin. Find rest at home. Debbie Elliott, NPR News.
13: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Asma Khalid, and I'm A Martinez. Coming
0: up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have an international perspective on the federal indictment of former President Donald Trump. Plus, one of Russia's biggest human rights activists goes on trial for criticizing the invasion of Ukraine. It's eight forty-nine.
5: When water from the Colorado River goes to California. of it is used for agriculture. So when water levels drop, the first cuts tend to land on farmers.
9: You can't solve a water supply problem with a food supply problem. But
5: as the single largest water user in a region with less water, can California agriculture adapt? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Former President Donald Trump faces felony federal charges for his handling of classified documents. Smoky skies from Canadian wildfires are starting to clear, though an air quality alert remains in place for the Cape Islands and South Coast. The Supreme Court ruled new congressional district maps in Alabama violated the Voting Rights Act and harmed black voters. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company. Offering professional, local, long-distance, office, and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide. GentleGiant.com.
0: Mid-60s and cloudy today with rain likely along with thunderstorms this afternoon. An air quality alert remains in effect, as you heard. The rain and thunderstorms may continue tonight. It'll fall to the low 50s. More scattered showers possible on Saturday, otherwise mostly cloudy, and around 70. We finally get a dry day on Sunday. It'll be sunny and in the upper 70s. It's 59 degrees in Boston.
31: A dark turn in American politics is, of course, a fundraising opportunity.
10: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly Business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at grammarly.com slash business. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore,
31: in for David Brancaccio. Donald Trump has become the first former U.S. president to face federal charges. The charges are related to the Justice Department's probe into Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents. And with that news not even 12 hours old, both Republicans and Democrats are using the indictment as a way to raise money, as Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genser reports.
29: The Trump campaign is firing off fundraising emails with blazing headlines like breaking Trump-facing imminent federal indictment. Stop whatever you're doing, sign a petition, and make a donation. Democrats sent out an email after the indictment pointing out that Trump was still the GOP frontrunner for president and asking for $7 to send Republicans a message and, quote, stop their right-wing agenda. Former President Trump has already raised millions from other accusations he faces, including charges earlier this year from a Manhattan grand jury related to alleged hush money in the 2016 election. Trump rallies his supporters and donors by claiming the charges are politically motivated. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace.
31: Back in the winter of 2021, Texas's electrical grid failed spectacularly as people heated their homes. Improvements have been made, and this summer, demand for electricity is expected to break records as people cool their homes. For the first time, the state will rely on renewable energy to help meet that peak demand. From Houston Marketplace's Elizabeth Trovel reports.
27: Texas has grown a lot in the last 25 years, and Rice University's Ken Medlock says with all those people and businesses moving into the state.
12: That's driving more need for more power.
27: At the same time.
12: You've had tremendous growth in wind and and now solar.
27: This summer, those renewable energy sources will be put to the test. Fossil fuel and nuclear power plants will no longer produce enough electricity to meet peak demand.
14: Solar is actually going to have just a massive impact.
27: Austin-based energy consultant Doug Lewin says solar has grown about tenfold in just a couple of years. So when Texas's ACs are blowing...
18: We're just not going to need to white-knuckle it through four or five in the evening when we're at peak demand.
27: He says the state has also bulked up its use of batteries to store solar energy and use it later, after the sun sets. In Houston, I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace.
31: Stocks rallied yesterday, and the S&P 500 closed at its highest level so far this year, up 20 percent from a low in October, which means... We are officially in a bull market. And so with that, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down a half a percent. S&P futures are about flat. NASDAQ futures are up three-tenths of a percent and Dow futures are down two-tenths of a percent. That's 75 points.
10: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to automate business processes. It's a smarter way to innovate. More at UiPath.com Marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by the podcast, Truth Be Told with Tanya Mosley, returns for a new season exploring research that shows psychedelics as a promising treatment for all forms of PTSD.
31: There's a theory out there in economics that the U.S. doesn't have a labor market. It has two. It would explain how we have such low unemployment and new jobs being added for 29 consecutive months, but some workers still struggle to escape poor paying or precarious jobs. Marketplace's senior economics contributor, Chris Farrell, joins us to talk about
15: it. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. So, a dual labor market. Explain that. There's a primary labor market, and it has relatively high wages, good working conditions, opportunities for advancement. A secondary labor market includes people who work at low wages, bad working conditions, unstable employment. And key to the idea of a dual labor market is that each sector differs greatly in its degree of employment stability and that there is limited mobility between the two sectors. So several decades ago, there's a group of economists argued that the U.S. had a dual labor market, but the framing fell out of favor for a variety of reasons. Just to give you one, the American labor market has historically been considered more flexible and fluid and even though this is deeply wrong the attitude was well workers in low-wage jobs these are low productivity workers they're unable or unwilling to get the skills needed for higher paying jobs we've seen in recent decades this increase in contingent workers temp workers basically
31: plus gig workers how do they fit into this dual labor market view of the economy
15: It's time to revisit this thesis for the U.S., which three economists recently did. And their analysis finds three distinct segments. They document a primary workforce, which comprises about 55 percent of the population. And these workers, you know, they have high levels of employment stability. And when they're unemployed, it's for a very short period of time. And the other two layers, I guess, don't have that luxury? No, so the secondary labor market makes about 14% of the population. But workers in this segment, their work lives, a constant state of flux. The secondary market accounts for 61% of unemployment in the economy. And they did mention a third sector. You can kind of wonder why they call it a dual market when they document three segments. Okay, but the third segment, 32% of the population. But people in this segment work very, very infrequently. So good example might be retirees.
31: So let's assume that this is accurate. What do we do with that information?
15: So I want to highlight what I think is the most important implication when you go through the dual labor market literature. And it tends to emphasize the difference between good jobs and bad jobs, rather than the current focus on the skills gap, the unskilled and the skilled worker. Specifically, What kinds of policies would industries and businesses to transform these bad jobs into good jobs, or at least narrow the gap? Marketplace's senior economics
31: contributor, Chris Farrell. Super interesting. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Jarrett Dang. Our engineers are Nick Esposito, Jake Cherry, and Brian Allison. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshaw with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.
0: Thanks for listening to Morning Edition this week on WBR. We'll have mid sixties today with showers and thunderstorms possible. The rain may continue tonight as it falls to the low fifties. Tomorrow, overcast and near seventy with showers possible. Then finally, a dry and sunny day on Sunday in the upper seventies. It's sixty degrees in Boston. We're coming up on nine o'clock, and the BBC is next.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW with a range of up to three hundred one miles. The BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers.
23: I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer, Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.